0: chapter last week, and before we, we'll take the 12th and maybe the first part of the 13th chapter, and we'll give just a brief review, and then we'll go ahead and start reading here. Uh, remember that uh, when Paul writes this letter, it's, it's different than the other letters that Paul writes, in the sense that the other letters that Paul writes that's in the New Testament were written to churches that Paul established that he had been there and established the churches and taught the people, and then he was writing them a letter back in response to specific problems that they were having. Romans is unique in the sense that at the time Paul writes this, no apostle has been to Rome. And so in the process of writing the letter, he does something that he really doesn't do in any of the other letters, that in the other letters, he only handles the Christian doctrine to the extent that he's dealing with problems that they're having. In Romans, he specifically explains the Christian doctrine, the Christian system of salvation, and he's not specifically dealing with problems they're having there at Rome. All right, the, the church at Rome is composed of Jews and Gentiles, but mostly Gentiles. And, and remember, in the biblical sense, a Gentile is just simply anybody that's not a Jew. I'm a Gentile. We're all Gentiles in the biblical sense of the word. And so the church there is composed of both Jew and Gentile. And what had happened before the, the message of Christianity was spread is the Jews had been scattered throughout the civilized world at that time, all of the Roman Empire. And every place the Jew went, he took this belief in a Messiah to come, that all through the Jewish prophets of the Old Testament, they had prophesied of a day when a great leader would come and that he would be a righteous man, and he would teach about peace. Uh, He would give himself as a sacrifice for others, uh, that death would be conquered through him, and he would establish a kingdom on this earth. And that's what the prophets had wrote about. And so everywhere the Jews went, they took that information. And so then after Jesus came and lived and was crucified, and then there was the report about his resurrection, where there was already a ready audience out there because they had already had this belief of the Jew about a Messiah to come. And so then they took this information out, and the evidence they had given of his resurrection was, number one, their eyewitness account. You had all the apostles and others who had seen Jesus crucified, they had saw him buried, and then they had witnessed the empty tomb, and they had seen him and talked with him and been with him and ate with him after his resurrection. And so you have the 12 apostles plus over 500 others who had seen him, and they were witnesses, and they were going out and teaching this. At the same time, there were all these prophecies in the Old Testament uh, that dealt with the life and ministry of the Messiah, and they were constantly going back to the Old Testament scriptures and showing how that in the life and teaching of Jesus that he fulfilled all these prophecies. All right, now, the good news, the word gospel just simply means good news. And the good news that was going out was the fact that man could be forgiven by God and have eternal life, okay? And the message would get a ready audience, just like all of us here today, we have one thing in common, and that is we're, we're all going to die, every last one of us. We know we're going to die. And, and no matter how much we gain in this life, no matter how much we accomplish, no matter how much wealth we got, uh, the bad news is that, that, we ha- we, that we seem impossible to do anything about is that we're going to die and that, that, that's it so good news is in opposition to bad news alright obviously if it can be proven that Jesus was raised from the dead after he was killed and if it can be proven uh, that uh, based on this that forgiveness is offered to mankind and mankind can, can be resurrected and live forever then obviously that's good news and so it's either good news or it's false it, it's, it's one or the other But anyway, in a world of dying people, uh, obviously it has a a ready audience. And so this message goes out, and these people at Rome are among the Jews and Gentiles that had responded to the good news, they had heard the evidence about Jesus, and they had embraced it. Now, in the first chapters that we looked at, Paul has done several things. One is he's convinced all the Gentiles that not only were they sinners and they deserved to die but they had no excuse for their sin. And for example, we noted that the Gentile might say, well, we did not have the written law like the Jew. And so therefore, how can we be accountable since we didn't have the written law? And Paul's argument was that God has made each one of us with conscience, that we have a conscience within us. We have a sense of ought. And that through our own conscience, we actually perceive right and wrong. And so in the second chapter, he said that the Gentile, in and of his own conscience, actually perceive the things of the law. A good example of that, of, of the man's perception, is just like uh, Lee and Donna from China. Uh, and we've got people in, our, in, in America that are from every country in the world. But the reason that we can have laws that we all agree on is because that we have a conscience and a, and a basic sense of right and wrong. In other words, all of us are for a law that's against murder. Uh, we we have a, we, we perceive that it's wrong to murder somebody else. We all are for laws against lying. We're all for laws against stealing. Uh, we're all for laws against cheating anybody or taking advantage of anybody. And so the very fact that we're in agreement on those type of laws shows that we have something within us that we can perceive right and wrong. And, and so much do we perceive it that when we do wrong, our conscience actually condemns us. And so every time we do something believe is wrong, our conscience condemns us. So Paul used that to show the Gentile that, you, yes, you deserve to die. In other words, the Bible says that we're going to die because we've sinned against God. And it said the way to, to live is to be forgiven. And, and so that Paul tells the Gentile, yes, you're going to die, but don't criticize God. And, and don't criticize your situation. The truth is that, that you have sinned and you know and understand what you've done. Then his next step was to condemn the Jew. The Jew was somewhat self-righteous. Uh, he thought because he had the law that he kind of looked down his nose at others. He looked down at looked down at the Gentile and thought he was better than the Gentile because he didn't do the things the Gentile did. And so Paul condemned the Jew. And he says, no, you're a sinner too. That although you've got the law, you don't perfectly keep the law. And so what he's saying to the Jew can be said to each of us that's here tonight. All of us know that we do not live up to what we believe. In other words, that we believe it's right to do all these right things. And yet at the same time, when we're honest with ourselves, we know we fall short of what we believe in, that we don't, we don't quite live up to what we believe in. And so he says to the Jew, you stand condemned, the very law that you exalt, that you don't keep it perfectly either. All right, then after after showing that all of us are going to die because of our sin and showing that we deserve to die because of our sin and that we understand what we're doing and, and the very guilt that we feel in our own conscience is our own witness to the fact that we are sinners and deserve the penalty of death. All right, then Paul gets into the good news. And the good news is is that God loved us so much that he gave Jesus for us. And so what Paul teaches is, is that in Jesus, God took an abode in human flesh. God who made us in his image, put himself in flesh and blood and lived in the way that he wants us to live. And so then he tells us to look at the life of Christ, and that is exactly what God wants in our lives. And so then when Jesus was killed, Paul said that God allowed that. To be the sacrifice for the sins of man. Okay, so now the good news in is that Christ has paid the penalty for our sin, that uh, he said he loved us, that if you and I are willing to repent of our sins, we can put our trust in him, God will forgive us, and then God wants to make us over again in his image. All right, now, as we get into the 12th chapter, what Paul is going to say is, in light of of God's mercy and all that you understand of it, God expects some changes to take place in you, okay? And so in the 12th chapter, we deal with the kind of people that God would have us be. Okay, Tim, let's start with you, and let's just go on around. Uh, If you uh, just pick up and read, and then we want to go through the 12th chapter, and then if you don't want to read the person next to you, just go ahead and read.
1: I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that, that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith.
2: Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ
0: we who are many can form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. It. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. I want to say I
3: to it. We only to one another and Honor the way of one another, to Never be lacking in the field, but be spiritual further, serving the Lord. Be joyful in the patient, gracious, gracious, faithful in prayer, share with God, faithful in my name. Practice yes, not the do not hurt. Be mourn to those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to accept people of wealth and position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay and evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it seems on you, give it to everyone. Do not take advantage, my friends, but leave wounds like all grass to his goodness. It is not to do, and I will not take the moment. On the contrary, your enemy is under exceeding
0: Okay, let's look at the the first part there. Uh, Verse 1 where it says, uh, Therefore, okay, the the word therefore means in light of, so in light of everything we just talked about, in light of uh, all this information before, uh, God's grace and goodness and all that he's done for us. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, okay? So anything we do, we have to be motivated. Now look at what he's asked us to do here. He said, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink, okay? He says to overcome evil with good. Uh, He says to love other people even when they're unlovable. And so he asks things to us that's contrary to our fleshly nature. I mean, our fleshly nature is to treat people just exactly the way they treat us. Uh, That if somebody uh, is going to harm you in some way, then you do it to him before he does it to you. I mean, or or if somebody's going to slap you, then you're going to slap him. Uh, Or this person that is not kind to you, then you're not going to be kind to him. That is the fleshly tendency, to just respond exactly in kind. So he asks us to do the exact opposite of what we often want to do. In other words, there'd be no effort required here if he was doing what you want to do. And so he's asking us to to do things. In fact, look at uh, verse 9, where he says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And then uh, verse 14, Bless those who persecute you. So all these things are difficult. So then the question becomes, where do we get the motivation to do these things obviously the motivation is not coming from the person that's wronging you because you want to smack him so that's not the motivation uh there's i don't know anything on this earth that would motivate you to do what he asked here i just just don't know of anything that would motivate you so paul tells us and this is the key of the whole thing where does the motivation come from for a christian to act different than people that are not Christian. I mean, because this is not the thing of the world. All right, so the key is right there. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, he's telling you that when you live this way, that he's asking, what you're really doing is offering yourself as a sacrifice, all right? Where does the motivation come for me to live my life sacrificing for others? I mean, why shouldn't I just spend everything I've got on myself, do everything just to please myself. Uh, if somebody wrongs me, just either ignore them or wrong them back. Why shouldn't I live my life that way? Well, the, the motivation, he says, in view of God's mercy. All right, here's what he's saying. Where are each of us without God's mercy? Lost. We're lost and dying. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to die because God is mean. I'm going to die because I've sinned. It's that simple. I'm going to die because I deserve to die. Just like people are in jail now. Most of the people who are in jail are in jail because they deserve to be there. Most of the people that are executed are, are being executed because they deserve to be executed. I'm not saying all, I'm saying most in, a, in, a, in the society. And so I deserve to die because I've sinned against God. You know, I have not always loved my neighbor uh, as myself. Uh, I have not always gone the extra mile or, or turned the cheek. I, I have not always treated other people the way I want to be treated myself. I have not always been this 100% honest person. And so that, uh, that looking at that, I'm going to die. So what happens as a result of God's mercy, and if Paul sets this forth, hold your place there and turn back to Romans 5 to, to appreciate what happens in the, the mercy part. Romans the 5th chapter. Okay, look at verse 1, chapter 5. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into His grace, which we now stand. Okay, now, come on down, and let's look at uh, verse starting with verse 6. You see at just the right time when we were still powerless Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more should we be saved from God's wrath than through him? Okay, so God died for us, in other words, Jesus died for us. He says, somebody might die for a good man, but who in the world is going out here and putting their own life on the line for an evil person? In fact, one of the problems we're having in this thing now with, uh, with uh, Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and, and Iraq, one of the problems that a lot of people in our country have with us being over there is that Saudi Arabia has a dictator. And they do not have freedom in Saudi Arabia. You do not have freedom to worship the way you want to. Ladies are almost slaves in Saudi Arabia. They have no rights whatsoever. They're just the possession of of the man. And this is true in Kuwait also. And so then people in our country say that, hey, why should we go over and lay our life on the line for two dictators who will not allow their people the same kind of freedom that ours have? So a lot of people have problem with that. Well, that's what Paul's saying, Somebody might die for a good person, but who in the world goes around dying for wicked people? Here they don't. But he said, this is exactly what God did. While we were his enemies, Christ died for us. And so how am I going to become this type of person that he's talking about here? I'm not going to become that type of person by looking at the individual that's, that's being evil towards me, because if I do that, I want to do the same thing to him that he's doing to me okay I'm not going to do it by by contemplating all the wrong things in life that's that's not going to do it in any way and so he says the only thing that's going to motivate me to be this kind of person is to think about God's mercy towards me and so when I think of the fact hey I'm not perfect and the only way that I am saved is through the sacrifice of Christ and the only way that I have any hope of eternal life is through Christ and so if Christ can do that for me then why can't I turn around and do what he asked me to do for somebody else? And that's that's Paul's entire argument. Motivation in Christianity does not come from some screaming preacher hollering about hellfire and brimstone. It it doesn't come from anybody trying to force anything on you. Motivation comes from within, from a heart that really and truly understands something about the love of God. And, And God's mercy towards us and the fact that God wants us to reciprocate and be the same way towards others. Okay, so the motivation is thinking about God's mercy towards us. And so when you're thinking about this person that you dislike so much and would like to knock him in the head or see somebody else knock him in the head or have him put in jail, and you think, well, how in the world can I love that person or do right? Then just think about the fact that if God had that attitude towards you, you wouldn't stand a chance. That you and I have sinned against God, And yet he forgave us. And now in light of his mercy, he's asking us to turn around and do the same thing uh, toward someone else. In fact, I suggest to you that one of the reasons in the church that we don't even reach more than we do is because we think people have got to be perfect before we can involve ourselves in their lives or do anything with them. That if we understood Christianity and realize that no matter what the condition of the other person, that we're to do what's right, because of the way God's been towards us, not because they are a certain way, uh, that because of what God has done towards us. Okay, so the motivation doesn't come from the other person. It comes from God and our relationship to Him. Now, notice what he says, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your act of worship. Okay, somebody want to give some thoughts on that? What does that mean, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, and that this is really the way you worship God, he said. Okay, your your daily lives in, in serving God. Uh, look at it from Paul's Jewish background, too. Uh, when you offered an animal as a sacrifice to God, what kind of an animal did you offer? or the most perfect you find. Right, most perfect you can find, one without blemish, the very, the very best. And then you offered it to God. Alright, it was a and it was a sacrifice. Now if something does not cost you anything, it's not a sacrifice. Okay? Uh, if somebody needs help out there and I flip them a quarter, that's not a sacrifice. I mean I can I can give up a quarter, not bad enough. But if I give in a way that it's going to affect me in some way so that I can't have as much of something that I want, well, then that becomes a sacrifice to me. And and, and if I go through life and I always do exactly what I want to do and I'm concerned about pleasing me, that's not a sacrifice because what you're really sacrificing is yourself. And so that means that, that when you live the Christian life that Paul's talking about, you don't always do what you want to do. And, and that goes contrary to the, the American culture. The, the American culture is, is get all the gusto out of life, do your own thing, have a good time, always be concerned about number one. I mean, that, that basically is, is, is the culture. This is just the opposite. It says to, to actually use your life in service to other people. And, and the way that we present ourselves as a sacrifice to God is to use our lives to serve other people. Uh, remember the example where Jesus got down and washed the feet of people in showing that, uh, that he says that, that this is what servitude was about uh, it's easy to break that down as many Christians do into going to church on Sunday and, and Wednesday night or, or whenever but there's a, there's a whole lot more there and I'm not saying this doesn't involve going to service I believe it does I believe it involves doing every right thing you can possibly do but he goes a lot deeper than that. He gets, gets into our lives. Okay, now, look at verse 2 as he builds up to what's coming after that. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. He is good, pleasing, and perfect will. Okay, now, what is, what is he saying there? do not conform any longer to the pattern of the world how let's let's look at it in a positive sense how do you conform to the pattern of the world okay in other words if if uh my values come from tb if, if that's where my if that's where i'm getting my values if my values just come from everybody else i mean uh whatever anybody else is doing and says is right if I'm deriving my values from that and so let me give you an idea of some of the things we say Uh, I'm going to do this because so-and-so does it or I think it's okay because so-and-so is doing that or what would you do in in that situation well that is conformant to the world we're in And, and everybody up here is flesh and blood just like us and most of them are just following their own flesh, and they're, they're doing their own thing. So he says, don't conform any long, longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. All right, now notice when he says be transformed by the renewing of your mind, changing your mind in becoming a different person doesn't happen overnight. It happens over a long period of time. One of the fallacies uh, that is taught among some Christian groups is that uh, the spirit gets into them and in some mystical way it changes them and they're they're better right away, well that's nonsense and it's not so and all you have to do is look at the lives of anybody believes that and know and it's not so, that you, you are changed over a period of time and so as we and learn and study and mature and grow and have our mind change, then our way of life is going to change and grow over a period of time. And that's why that when it comes to doing what's right, you can't just look at the other person because he may not have reached your level of growth yet. And so our mind is in the process of changing. So be transformed. It's something we're always in the process of doing. By the renewing of your mind, it doesn't happen overnight, and it may not completely happen in this life. 2
3: Peter, commentary on that. They talk about adding all of these Christian races, faith, self-control, and, um, faith and right. John and he said if you possess these qualities in a precinct nature, then they'll keep you protective and unproductive. And he goes on there and says, if you do these things you never follow the world,
0: see in the world. Okay, that passage she quoted was Second Peter one, four through eleven, and that's right that he's he makes it clear that spirituality is something that happens over a period of time. And we actually have to make a willful effort. Uh, there is no such thing as just a, a patient person. Uh, a lot of times we look at individuals and say, oh, he's patient, or he's kind, or she is considerate, or whatever, that uh, I wish I was like that. Well Paul's saying, you can be that way, and so can I, that nobody is, no baby is born with patience. No baby has born is born with patience. No baby is born with kindness. In fact, if, you, if we have any doubts about it, put some little babies, little small people, and let them out there and see what, ha- and throw some toys out there and just watch and see how they share it and, and how considerate they are of one another. They're not, are they? Uh, the babies are selfish. They're concerned about what they want to do. They cry if they don't get their way. Uh, that uh, No spiritual quality does that baby have. And so patience and kindness and, and love and all of these qualities are qualities that we pick up as we go through life. And I suggest to you that according to what Paul is saying and what the Bible teaches, if a person is patient, what are they really doing? I mean, are is there some people that are just naturally patient? I mean, are some people just naturally humble? Some people just naturally kind?
1: things that they've worked on through their lives have gotten better at. Now, it may be that the way someone was raised allows them to be more humble just because maybe their parents were more humble when they grew up, you know,
0: maybe at a young age they were pretty humble. But actually, even when they was getting from their parents, that was a learning process yeah. there, wasn't it? That, uh That like uh, Paul or uh, Peter uh, told the believing wife that had an unbelieving husband to win him by her life that hadn't been won by the word. So, if, and you're right, there are some people that were fortunate to have parents that possess certain good qualities, and they pick them up, but still, that was a learning process. They, that child was not born with patience, and they were not born honest, and they were not born good. They were born a blank sheet. And then they learn those qualities, all right? In the same way, somebody can be born in a family where they can learn impatience, can't they? I mean, if, if you've got uh, parents who are real quick-tempered and plow up the handle just like that. Well, I guarantee you, you're not going to have patient children come out of that family. They're going to be quick, tempered and plow. If you've got parents that lie, you're going to have children that lie. If you've got parents that are always criticizing other people, you're going to have children that are always criticizing other people. And so they 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 learn. But, as we grow and become accountable, and Paul is writing to people that come from all kinds of backgrounds, what he's saying is we can make a decision to be what we want to. And so, in fact, uh I forget where I read this, the book, but it's a study that all the psychologists are in agreement on, that if you want to, to be a certain, if you want to develop a certain characteristic so that it becomes habit, the general time frame that, that psychologists would say would get it in you is, is, is about three weeks. In other words, if you've got a characteristic that you want to establish in yourself and say, I want this characteristic. And so you go every day, and you actually work to become that kind of person. And when, and when you're not, you correct yourself. It said if you're willing to do that for about three weeks' time, you can do a pretty good job of ingraining that particular characteristic in yourself. It's going to be hard, but you keep going, and you can ingrain that characteristic. I believe people who are very impatient can become patient. People who are quick-tempered can become slow to anger. That uh, people who are dishonest can become honest. Uh, I think uh, if a person's been dishonest, they're not going to become honest overnight. I mean, if you're in a habit of lying to get yourself out of problems and, and or to make yourself look different than what you are, you're not going to stop that overnight. But if you say to yourself, I am going to tell the truth, and then every time you lie, you catch yourself, and you get it straight, and you just really work at it, then over a period of time, you're going to develop into an honest person. And so with all these characteristics, but what Paul is actually saying is that you and I can become what we want to be, no matter no matter what the society is around us. And it's a cop-out to look around us and see other people out here and say, well everybody out here is drinking and they're all doing drugs and they're all fornicating and they're doing all these things, surely God will understand me doing the same thing. Well Paul says that's, that's just not so, but that's the way we were when we came to Christ. And He forgave us and now He wants us in view of His mercy thinking about how much he's loved us and done for us, he wants us to change and be this type of person, that God wants us to be patient, he wants us to be loving, he wants us to be kind, he wants us to overcome evil with good, and he says that if you're willing to work at it, then we can become this kind of person. And and in the process, now notice what happens in the process, this is the way that you present yourself a living sacrifice, because it's not natural really to be patient, is it? It's, it's, uh, it, it, the, the thing, I mean, the natural thing is to get what you want right now. That's what comes natural. Patience is something you have to work at. Uh, it's not natural to, to love people who don't, like, don't even like you, much less love you. Uh, it, it's something that has to be worked at if we're going to love people who don't even like us. Uh, it's not natural to be kind to people who are not kind to us. It's something that we have to work at. And in in all ways, we say, "Well, hey, God's kind to me, even though I wasn't to him." And this is the way that He wants wants me to behave. Okay, anybody with any other comments on what he's saying there? You. Just, um, first verse,
3: three, talk to them Better that. There, motivation really to do our thinking on God's mercy and God's love, and that that will motivate us to do what's not in the region that the hellfire room won't do it. I think that I think we've all experienced the fact that it does with for a short period of time, just like if there's a policeman there, the the guy with a robber, he's not going to break into a bank or whatever because of the consequences. He's so afraid of the consequences that it doesn't necessarily change his heart. And I think that's why when we have the revival that that people are motivated for a short period right. of time because they're all fired up emotionally and scared. But right. then that's
0: why we have to have another revival right.
3: right. because we're not motivated by God's love
0: and have to consider great mercy so. right. I think that yeah, I think that's a good illustration that you can, through fear, motivate people for short periods of time. But in the long run, the only thing that really changes people is is from within and, and out of, and out of love and in, in view of God's mercy. But uh, that's the that's the only thing that carries through in, a, in the long run. Uh, it's like the laws of the land. If they impose some laws on us that we don't believe is right, if they've got enough soldiers, enough guns, they can do it, because out of fear we'll respect the law. But that can't go on in, indefinitely. As soon as you take away the guns, the whole system's going to collapse. The only way to have a society where, where people actually do what's right and all, is, is to have it internalized and to have the kind of laws that they actually agree to. And if you have the kind of laws that people agree to, then you don't have to force it on them with guns. That they're going to, if they agree to it, then they're going to obey it without guns. And Paul is wanting us to have the kind of heart where we're always thinking about the love that God has for us, what He's done for us, and He wants us to be a certain way towards these people here. now. What is happening here when he says you, you don't take vengeance on people that do you in? Uh, you love even people that hate you? Or, are these people getting a free ride, Or what, what's, what's this supposed to do? I mean, what happens to these individuals that go through life and they are wicked, etc., and yet we're being asked to treat them in a certain way? So like
2: exactly, a wicked person. Does themselves do themselves in? I mean, you're trying. I mean, the way that he sets it up for you to treat them in, is just the best thing that you could do. Uh, it may not seem you won't get good consequences, maybe sometimes, but when you're always angry at somebody or wanting to you know, tear them down or you, you know, you're behaving like you're to slip through ever, you're going to suffer some, some bad things because of that.
0: Okay, right. In other words, you're saying that the wicked person. There's going to be a lot of natural consequences. Because
2: they're just not doing what's right. It's right. just naturally
0: happens. Right. But, uh, that you and I, because of our beliefs as a Christian, may go ahead and be kind to him, even though he's not. But along the way, he's going to run into a lot of people that surely are not Christian, they're going to give him just exactly what he did. And not only that,
2: but it's sometimes when you're doing the right thing, it's not to your benefit. Like uh-huh. When you, you tell the truth when you don't have to, or, or, I mean, it would be your benefit not to. But you at least have peace with God in
0: your conscience. You,
2: right. know that you
0: did what was right. right. So. All right, and what about the passage down there, like uh, in verse, look at the, verse 20. Uh, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. It says, in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What's he saying there as a general rule of life? Like right, how do you feel if you have if you have mistreated somebody and you know it and then they come right back at you and mistreat you? That doesn't that make doesn't that justify in your mind that you did the right thing in the first place, you hated them for a good reason? I mean really, any time that you mistreat somebody and they come right back at you then each of you wind up justifying in your own mind your hatred for the other person. All right, but how do you feel if you mistreat somebody and then they turn around and they're actually kind towards you and are actually willing to help you? I mean, here you are, your car broke down on the road out here from nowhere and here's this guy driving by that you have gossiped about or or shot his dog or or whatever you know and you've had no use for him and you just didn't like him. And then he, he stops and helps you out and is very courteous and is considerate of your needs. And then he goes on his way. Now, how do you feel? Your
2: mind is on fire. You can't stand
0: it. Okay. You feel like a heel, don't you? Somewhat. It's it, like it. It been
2: unfair.
0: Right. Uh, have you ever had the situation of even uh, uh, judging somebody on some situation before you knew all the facts? And then you found out it wasn't that way and you, you felt bad. So what he's saying is that uh, when you treat people bad, that treat you bad, then we just get a big, a good a good example of that is the Jews and the Arabs. Now what happens when an Arab comes over here and shoots a Jew? Jews go over there, Jew goes over there and shoots an, arabs. an Arab, yeah. right, and then the Arab comes over and shoots a Jew, and the Jew goes and shoots an Arab, and they just go back and forth. But wonder what in the world would happen if somebody was big enough to stop and say, I'm not going to respond in kind, you know, that I'm not going out and shoot, even though the other person does, that I just wonder what would happen in Israel if they told the Arabs there, we're going to give you the West Bank back, and we're going to, we're going to give you some equal freedom with us, and start treating you in a civil way. I just wonder what would happen. Obviously, they don't believe the right thing would happen, or they'd, they'd try it. But that Paul is saying that if you treat people good who are your enemies that that you actually make them feel bad about what they've done to you. So if your enemy is hungry feed him, if he's thirsty give him something to drink If you will, in doing this you will heap burning coals on his head or he says do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good the only way that you overcome evil is with good and I think in your, your everyday life when you walk down the street the guy that's peddling drugs, or that is the town drunk, or who's out stripping cars or whatever, uh, the tendency is to look down on that person. I mean, that, that's, that would be the normal tendency. Well, all, all we definitely don't want to encourage that behavior, but I believe what Paul is saying is that that person still, as an individual, ought to be loved, he ought to be treated in a kind way, uh, you ought to speak to the person uh, if there's a need then we will be quick to help him out. Now if I understand what he's saying, that if there's a need there, that if that person gets sick, that there ought to be some concern about that individual. And he says the end result will be to overcome evil with good and to change that individual. Anybody with any comments, disagreements, or anything on what he's saying there? By the way, isn't this really the, the hardest part of the teaching of Jesus to put in practice? Yeah, it is. It is for me, uh, and, and there's no one of us that does this perfectly, at best. There's no one of us. But the interesting thing to me is that although I, I don't do it perfectly by a long shot, and I fall tremendously short of it, but inwardly I believe it's right and it's the only way that it works, and and I it, it just is. And so the weakness is not in the in what the law is. The weakness is in me for for not doing the very thing that I know. Is, is the only thing that will work but he's, he's in all of this remember how we started off now he said present yourself a living sacrifice well if it was easy to do these things there'd be no sacrifice involved would there? I mean if it was easy to treat people good when they didn't treat you good and if it was easy to be patient and if it was easy to be kind uh, if it's easy to help somebody out who wasn't your enemy then there would be no sacrifice involved it, it, but there is sacrifice involved because these things are extremely difficult to do and, and so the only way we're going to do it is to, to sacrifice of ourselves ok now back up to uh, let's see verse uh, verse 3 to yeah, verse 3 for the, by the grace given to me I say to every one of you do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you. Just as God, in other words, to my mind, in light of the context, when he says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, think with sober judgment, that I need to realize that although that I might look at myself in comparison to some others out there and get to thinking I'm a pretty good person, but I need to look at myself in comparison to Christ and I don't look so hot and so I don't need to think of myself more highly I'm, I'm a sinner saved by the grace of God and I, I need to keep that in mind just as each of us has one body with many members okay we, we've got one body we've got eyes, ears, hands etc and it doesn't have the same function so in Christ we are, who are many form one body and we have different gifts alright now Paul although he's asking us to to develop certain characteristics, he's saying that we have different talents and different abilities. Everybody doesn't have the ability to be a, uh, he's talking about prophesying there, will say preaching or teaching public. everybody doesn't have the same kind of ability. Uh, everybody doesn't have the same ability when it comes to teaching or doing some of these other things. And so he seems to be saying that to take a good look at yourself, and, and look at you in in light of those things that, that you're good at and, and know you're good at and then go ahead and, and exercise in those particular gifts. Everybody's not a leader. Uh if you look at yourself and and you feel that you have the qualities uh, to be a leader and everything like that, then go ahead and do it and, and do it diligently. And and so with all the all the other qualities there. Um, I, I think I
2: know the answer to this question, but I when he says, we all have different gifts according to the grace given us, kind of, first of all, you know, what are what you talking about? Like he said down here, for the grace given to me, that's sort of like in a general sense, like we all have grace, and God loved us and all, but then he says, the command man's gift is prophesied. Okay, and he didn't go to the church at Rome. Okay. So,
0: in the context... I uh,
2: know principle that you're trying to yeah. say there.
0: All right, in context for them, uh, Mark, I believe he had reference to the, the gifts that they actually had. And uh, that like he said in prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. The various gifts that they had were conditioned upon their own faith. In other words, just like the, when the uh, apostles could not heal the person in Matthew 17 after Jesus told them to, he said it was because of your little faith. In other words, those that had the ability to do it, it was conditioned on their faith. And so I think that uh, Paul as an apostle had to exercise his own faith. And the very way God designed those gifts is that it depended upon the faith of the individual. And
2: those people had the gifts, but he hadn't been to Rome, so
0: they had to come from somewhere. They come from other places, yeah. Well, see, keep in mind that the apostles... there. And so some of them had those particular gifts. Uh, a lot did not, uh, but some did. It's like you he,
2: like he said, if it's serving and teaching and encouraging, a lot of that we do today. Right. We, couldn't, we couldn't prophesy or, or heal somebody. Or whatever, well, you
0: can prophesy in really according to the definition of the word but not in a miraculous sense. In other words, the, the Holy Spirit is given the information and you and I read it and get it as opposed to the give, being given directly to them, but then the end result is the same. You're to a prophet by definition is simply a person who takes a message from one person and carries it to somebody else without tampering with it. Like uh, Aaron was referred to as a prophet of Moses. That God, no, right, just a spokesman. In other words, that. Uh, we think of prophet always as foretelling, but that, that was secondary, really. He was number one, a spokesman, and when he was foretelling, he was still taking a message from God, but by definition, a prophet was one who took a message from somebody and accurately conveyed it to somebody else, and so uh, Aaron was Moses' prophet, and uh, the prophets of Baal were those that took the doctrine of Baal and taught it to others. It's miraculous to do
2: when they say that I've got something that God told me, right. so sort
0: of that was God speaking through them but we have the same thing today in the sense that you've got the information right here and so that that if you when you t- take this information that you've studied and convey it to others you're doing the same thing You just you just got your information in a different way but you're doing the same thing and the same with the, the teaching nobody had a new testament back then it was in the process of being written but when you take the information from the new testament you're still doing the same thing as when it was being given to them. The end result is that you're teaching. And so when we look at ourselves, we don't all have the same ability to, to read and assimilate information and to present it and everything like that. And the same with these others. Look at the word, just like encouraging. We don't, uh, when I go into a hospital to visit somebody that is very sick, and maybe with cancer or something serious. I always feel extremely inadequate because I've been super fortunate in my life. I've never been seriously sick. And to this point, it's coming, but I'm saying I feel, I can't say I know how you feel. I I have problem with full empathy because I've just never, uh, I've never been in hospital. I've never had a stitch taken in me. I've never had a broken bone. I've never had anything worse than the flu, you know, so that I'm, I'm there. But I think that people who have gone through what that person is, somebody who has laid on the operating table. In other words, when they will that person out to operate, I'm just like when we went to the hospital and Barbara's sister was being operated on, and they will her in there and you know they're going to cut a hole in her head and cut a tumor off their brain. I don't know what's going through her mind. You see, I have no way of knowing what's going through, I can't even come to grips with that. But I think somebody who had went through the experience of being operated on and off would be far better at empathizing with her than I would. Uh, if I'm talking to somebody that's an alcoholic, I have difficulty empathizing because I've never been addicted to alcohol. It's never been a problem with me. But if, if you're a person that it was a problem, and you conquered it, I'd say that you would be 10 times over better talking with that person than me. They're going to look at me as somebody that don't even understand them, You know, but, but you do. And same <coughs> thing if you've overcome drugs, uh, the, the best people we have right now that are going into the schools and speaking to kids and working with people to overcome drugs are people who resigned at one time. They're the best, the, the best people we've got that are fighting alcohol are, are people that are, for, are recovering alcoholics. And, and so they can really empathize with these people and so they can go in and they can really, really deal with it. Uh, uh, a woman who's had a certain situation or a man in life would be better at empathizing with somebody else. So I'm saying that, that the experiences that we have in life qualify us to be better at some things than other people. Uh, Lee and his wife Donna have had experiences in their life in China that none of us have had. As a result of that, there would be a number of things that they would understand a whole lot better than any one of us. I mean, there's no way in the world that I could understand some of the things that, that Lee understands because I haven't had those experiences. And, and so that when he talks about these gifts, we we, we, some, we get information through learning, but we also get information through experiences. And, and then there are certain things in our own bodies and all that um, a female understands another female or a male, another male in some areas because they, they, they know exactly what that person is feeling, whereas the other sex just has to guess at it. And that's it. So I'm saying that on these gifts, he's saying that the, as Christians, recognize ourselves as a body, we're all different. We have different intellects. Some of us are male, some of us are female. Uh, we have different cultural backgrounds. We have different abilities. And so zero in on the things that you can do really good and do it. And, and don't expect everybody to be as good as you are uh, at everything. I've known some people in the church that did a lot of certain things. And then they would criticize others for not doing the same thing. Well, maybe some of those other people can do other things. But, uh, that uh, we do have different abilities. Uh, and, and we have to be careful that we, you know, that we don't expect everybody to do just exactly what we're doing. Or, each, or the, the other individual too. And so Paul says in presenting yourself as a sacrifice, look at yourself and, and the things that you have the ability to do. And the, and the talent that God has given you and all go ahead and really exercise that and, and use it in a good way. Where it says, show, let me give you another example. He says, like, if it's showing mercy, you think, well, God wants us all to demonstrate mercy to others. But remember the example that Jesus gave that uh, here was this woman that was washing his feet, and, and she had been a harlot, and, and she repented and he forgave her. and And Simon, the religious leader, was looking at that and he was just indignant and he said that uh, if he knew what kind of person she was that he wouldn't even let her touch it and then so he said Simon let me tell you a story he said a man there was two people that owed him a debt one a big debt and the other a little debt and he forgave them both he said now which one do you think is going to love the, the owner the most and he said well the one that got forgiven the most and he said well this woman was forgiven a lot and so she loves a lot uh, that I'm, when it comes to mercy that uh, I think sometimes people who who really know and, and have come to a full understanding of just how bad their situation was before God and God forgave them as a result of that they have maybe a real capacity to, that goes beyond some others when it comes to showing mercy uh, towards other people but sometimes uh, some of those of us who have slipped a little less than others are not always the greatest at showing mercy and so that that all, many things in life make it so that each of us are going to have different qualities that the others do not possess and that we need to look at ourselves as just part of the body of Christ.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's good. In fact, uh, a good example here. I don't want to embarrass uh, uh, Jack and Louise but the church over here. I'd have left that years ago if it wasn't for Jack and Louise. I mean that they are the they been a, and then a few people, but primarily Jack and Louise. I would have left that place and I'd have been going over to Chattanooga or someplace else because they. I mean they've been such a source of encouragement in uh, in supporting the work fully uh, when we started this study. Say so like now we have a lot of people here. You know who our first study home study started with? It was us and Jack and Louise. That's how we got started. But, and, and then, so when other people would come in so that they felt more comfortable and it wasn't just like we was teaching that one person, it was good to always have another couple there. Well, the same thing on Wednesday night. Uh, there's been times when we have been almost by ourselves if it wasn't for Jack and Louise. And just like right now, uh, I've got a man, a school teacher, that I've invited to come to service. He's been coming to services regularly on Wednesday night. Well, sometimes it's an embarrassment to me, the, the the few people that's there, you know, and all. But they're always there, and 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 I think that. Uh, so what it is, their source of encouragement, I may be doing the teaching, but their source of encouragement is such that uh, it may not be a big thing over there. But I wouldn't be there if it were not just flat would not be there. And uh, all of us have to have if you're if you're going to do you have to have it. And if you're doing anything, I think another thing. Uh, uh, some of you here are not aware of people like Donald Wildman, in the American Family Association, who's fighting pornography and things like that. Uh, man, uh, he ever, despite all the hate mail and everything, he still gets letters that encourage him and, and tell him they appreciate what he's doing. I would guess if you take away those letters of encouragement, he would have already quit. It is difficult to keep going if absolutely nobody cares. I mean. Uh, As good a man as Elijah was, he went off to a cave by himself. And so it is, it's really difficult to keep going. And as long as you can think that there are people out here who cares. Well, on this encouraging thing, when people come to church and you know they're having all kinds of problems. Here may be somebody that's having a marriage problem. They may be having a problem with their children. uh, The guy may have just lost his job. Whatever it is. And it's very easy to get down. And so these people that are there to encourage others and to show an interest and to say, I care, and involve themselves in the lives of other people, that they're as, as important to the body as anything can possibly be. <coughs> so that uh, all of these things are, are something that's just real important. And again, each of us would have to look at ourselves as an individual and see what, what in the world can, can we actually do? Anything else? Okay, look at verse 9. Getting on up. Love must be sincere. What What's that mean? Love must be sincere. It's just, uh, can't be fake. Like you can pretend, don't you? Okay.
1: Uh, I guess you can do things and pretend like they're out of love, but if they're not really out of love, it, it doesn't be any good. Like if you, you know if you give someone $50 that needs money everybody knows that you gave them $50 and that's why you did it. You didn't do it because you loved that person. And you wanted, you know, them to be able to rise out of the situation
0: and really, you know, it wasn't love. Okay, that sometimes we, Tim is saying, sometimes we try to leave the impression we have done something out of love but in reality the motive may have been something else. Uh, Paul deals with that somewhat in 1 Corinthians when uh, he said if you If you give your body to be burned, but don't do it out of love, it's of no avail. Or if you sell all your possessions to give to the poor. Some people contribute simply because they get their satisfaction out of other people thinking of them uh, as a great contributor. Uh, The Pharisees got a satisfaction out of other people thinking they were religious when they were not. And so he says, love is sincere. He said, uh, this love ought to be something that comes from the heart. And you're doing it because of your belief in God, and it's, it's the right thing to do it. It's not some phony thing that you put on for people. Hate what is evil. Nothing wrong with hatred. It's what you actually hate what is evil. And so love what is right, hate what is good. Right, cling to what is good. And so it says, go through life and just literally hold on to the things that are good. Hate the things that are evil. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. That's not natural either, is it? I mean, the natural is, is we're number one. How often do we see that? Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. I notice that when it comes to zeal or any of these qualities, that he always approaches it from the standpoint that it's something that we do in and of ourselves. Uh, we don't just naturally have any of this happen. Uh, if, if, if you're going to be zealous Uh, then then you're going to have to make the decision in your mind that I'm going to be zealous. And and it's just like uh, uh, when two teams go out to play one another. What happens if this team does not psych itself up and say, I'm going to get out there and give it all I've got and everything like that? Well, they get out there and they're flat. And and sometimes a a real good team will get beat by a lesser team that is all psyched up and zealous. But zeal doesn't come natural, and great athletes sometimes don't have it and they lose that you you have to make up your mind that I am going to be zealous. I'm going to give it all I've got. And and the same he's saying with Christianity, that uh, you're not just naturally zealous, that you you have to say, I want to be zealous, you know, and I'm going to give it all I've got. Okay, any other um, comments on that chapter? Okay, so Paul is saying here then that uh, in view of God's mercy and love, in other words, the motivating force for Christians to do good is God's love. Uh, we're, and so that even if somebody else is not doing good, we're still going to be good to him. Uh, and, and the end result now is we want to change that person. And what Paul is saying is that, that when we just hate him back, then he hates us and it just keeps going. But somewhere along the line, if somebody's big enough to break that cycle and love somebody who doesn't love you, then maybe we can change that person, and that's the way he said that God changes us. That He loved us, even though we weren't doing things to motivate His love. Joe, any comments? No, I
2: think it's hard to work. Now I got mm-hmm. something else. One to comment. If, if all these things are real good and everything, but you can't again think that any of that's going to make anything of yourself. I mean, it's the right thing to do and God expects it, but we, we can't make it just by doing
0: those things. Well, and he's saying don't be high-minded to think of yourself. In other words, know that the very thing that's motivating us is His grace and what we're saying there is we know we're not good enough in and of our own merit. And, it, and it's that grace that causes us, in other words, we can be loving and kind because all the time we know it's God's having to constantly forgive us and uh, sometimes the, the people maybe be find it the most difficult to or, or are a little bit self-righteous and are not thinking enough about how much uh, just the very thing you mentioned there that the more we think about how much it takes of God to show mercy on us the more we're going to be and the more, more righteous we think we are probably the more critical we're going to be of this other person <clears throat> okay alright we'll pause there and Next uh, time, in the 13th, chapter he gets into the Christians' relationship to the civil government. Okay, we'll spend the the entire time next week on the Christians' relationship to the civil government, or the next time we study, I should say. Let's see, what is, uh, uh, today is the first, right? Yeah. And we so we sure have. To 15th? Huh? So the week after this Saturday would be what? Would that yeah. be the 14th? Yeah. 14th.
3: No, well, I mean, in two weeks it would be the 14th. Yeah. Okay.
0: Be, yeah. So it would be exactly the 14th. Okay, so then our our next study would be the 14th. Yeah, it's no, yeah.
1: it would be been the
2: 15th. Days, yeah. It would be
0: the 15th. Okay. Okay, so the Saturday the 15th we'll have the next study.